you've heard the text, I invite you to turn to it in your Bibles this morning, Revelation chapter 2, this morning verses 1 through 7. Uh, Now we are uh, uh, moving out of kind of the the introduction of the book of Revelation into a bit of the meat of it, and where we'll be for the next seven weeks, we'll be in chapters 2 and 3 in these various letters to churches in uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, seven churches to whom Jesus had a word uh, to speak, today looking at the letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, It was... um, Early in the 20th century or so, in, uh, in the West, not the Western United States, but the global West, Europe and, um, uh, and, and uh, North America, when uh, a new kind of theology kind of came onto the scene in Christendom. It was uh, a more liberal form of theology, a more uh, not quite progressive sort of theology that we think about today, but it was a, a theology of social transformation, not necessarily driven by the gospel, but with um, a desire to see society transformed, the poor taken care of, but apart from the gospel call to faith and repentance. Uh, faith in Christ, repentance of sin, and that sort of thing. There was a thought among liberal theologians that we can transform the world to be the kingdom of God without taking the gospel of Jesus and all of its convicting, uh, 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 all of its conviction for sin to the world. We can just care for the poor, we can feed the hungry, we can clothe the naked, and that will be good enough. Well, half a gospel is no gospel. And certainly the gospel calls us to care for others. Certainly the gospel calls us to, to seek to transform society, but not just so that we'll have a transformed society. The gospel calls us to see trans, the society transformed through the preaching of the gospel as hearts are awakened to faith and lives are changed by the Holy Spirit of God as they trust in Jesus. And, and we want a society that is moral, not just because it's moral, but because it is full of the righteousness of God uh, that, that comes from hearts that love Him. In response to this kind of liberal theological movement in the early 20th century, a group of Christians uh, began uh, uh, publishing and writing about the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Fundamentals of the Christian faith were things like the authority and sufficiency of God's Word, the necessity of proclaiming the gospel to all people for the forgiveness of sins, things like the importance of, of, of maintaining meaningful church membership and that sort of thing. And these people who, who were proclaiming and publishing about the fundamentals eventually came to be known as the fundamentalists. But you say fundamentalist, and a totally different picture comes to mind, doesn't it? You say fundamentalist, and you think of the, the preacher father from the movie Footloose, right? The one who, who doesn't believe in dancing, who's trying to keep all the kids from having fun. And Kevin Bacon in his uh, awesome, was it a Chevy pickup truck? Was it a Ford? It was a Chevy. My dad says it was a Chevy. It was a Chevy. In his Chevy pickup truck coming into town and teaching everybody how to dance in the barn and uh, all that kind of thing. But John Lithgow, his, his preacher character, preacher father character, is a picture of, of how kind of fundamentalists have come to be characterized in our minds. And do you know why they've become characterized that way? Because fundamentalists were really like that after a while. They were opposed to things that were not true about the gospel. They were opposed to half gospels and false gospels. And they became known for being not what they were for, but for what they were against. They became known as public protesters of everything. They became known as the people who never go to the movies, who don't dance, who don't smoke or drink or chew or go with girls who do, right? 
Fundamentalists, fundamentalists were known for all the things they were against and for none of the things that they were for. And let's be honest, I don't know too many people that really like fundamentalists all that much, although we don't necessarily disagree with the theological conclusions of most of the fundamentalists. We do believe in the authority and sufficiency of God's Word. We do believe in the importance, the absolute necessity of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, who died for sins and was raised again, and that salvation comes only by faith in Him. We, we agree on all those things. And yet here was a group who, in the early 20th century, out of all their desire to guard the church or guard the gospel against falsehood or false gospels or half-gospels in the world, eventually became known more for this calcified, calloused position of being against things more than they were known for being for things, most especially more than being known for their love for the lost and their desire to see them come to faith in Jesus. Seems to be the case for the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. As Jesus confronts a church who has fallen into loveless orthodoxy. Well, I'll unpack that statement here in a little bit. But this is the, this is the main idea of Christ's word to the church in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, to the church at Ephesus. To beware, watch out for... Take caution against loveless orthodoxy. As we see this and, and look at the letter uh, to the church in Ephesus, uh, I want for our hearts to be engaged this way. I want for us to respond to God's Word in this way, that knowing that we love Jesus, that we not let our knowledge of Christ turn our hearts away from the world, that we not let our knowledge of the truth turn our hearts away from those who need to hear it most. Beware loveless orthodoxy. As this letter to the church opens up, we see Jesus first uh, uh, addressing his people at the church in Ephesus. We see the Lord and his people there in verses 1 and 2. Jesus is addressing this church through the Apostle John to the, or addressing this letter through the Apostle John to the church at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a major city in Rome 2,000 years ago very major city. It, it sat near uh, a very busy seaport. Uh, now today that seaport has been filled in with silt and uh, it was filled in with silt a long time ago and, and eventually Ephesus kind of lost its luster as this major commercial city. But it sat near a seaport. It sat at the crossroads of two major trade routes within the Roman Empire. So it was a city of major economic significance. There was a lot of trade traffic going through the city in Ephesus. But the city of Ephesus was also a city of major religious uh, uh, significance. There was in Ephesus a temple to the goddess Diana or Artemis, depending on if you're doing Roman or Greek sort of uh, uh, theological worldview. Temple to the goddess Diana there in the city, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People would make pilgrimages from all over Rome to go worship there. Ephesus was also home to two temples to the imperial cult. The imperial cult was worship of the, of the emperor, worship of the nation of Rome. And so it was a place of significant uh, 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 spiritual importance in the Roman Empire. Paul the Apostle spent three years in Ephesus, 
teaching and preaching there. It was the longest place, the longest time he was able to spend in any place among his uh, along his missionary journeys. Later on, he sent young Timothy to lead the church to help to lead the church in Ephesus, and he wrote two letters to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, uh, so creatively named, and uh, encouraging Timothy in his leadership of the church there in that city. Eventually, John, the author, uh, the writer of Revelation, to whom all of this was shown by Jesus, eventually John in his later years settled in that same city. And this is probably why he was exiled to the island of Patmos uh, for preaching the gospel, because Patmos was an island relatively close to Ephesus. It's just easy enough to ship people there. That's the context of the city that Jesus is speaking to. But what do we learn about the person of Jesus? We know he's riding to the church in Ephesus, and through the... Sorry, I just had a really long hair on my sweater that distracted me. He's riding to the church in Ephesus, but he also uh, uh, introduces himself to the church. He says, write this to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Who is the Lord that is speaking to his people? Well, in all of these letters that we'll see to the churches, Jesus is going to introduce himself and and describe himself to the church with some part of that image of him that we saw last week in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, that, that glorious vision of the risen Son of Man that John describes to us now is going to become significant for the churches that Jesus writes to. He is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That is to say, as we saw last week, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And the seven churches represent not just the seven churches of Asia Minor that uh, Jesus is addressing, but symbolically the whole church in all the world. Jesus is the one who tends to his churches. He's the one who makes sure their lamp is lit. He's the one that tends to their wicks, seeing to their spiritual health. Uh, We see here as Jesus being the one who walks among the lampstands, he is the one who has authority over the church. He's in charge of the lampstands. He's not just lit up by them. He is maintaining them. He is caring for them. He is doing all things that they need for being lamps. He says in chapter or verse 2, the first part of verse 2, to the church, he says, I who walk among the lampstands, I know your works. I know your deeds. I love the way the New Living Translation says this. I know all the things you do. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands knows all the things his church does. Let that sit on you a minute. If you were to hear the words of Jesus, and you do in Scripture today, if you were to hear Jesus say to you, I know all the things you do, how would you respond? What would your initial reaction be? I was listening to an audio Bible uh, a couple of weeks ago, and Jesus says this same thing. I know all the things you do to the church at Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 19, to the church at Sardis in chapter 3, verse 1, to the church at Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 8, and to the church at Laodicea in chapter 3, verse 15. We'll see all these in the coming weeks. But he also, we also see Jesus speaking about his knowledge of his church of the saints at the church in Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 9, and at the church at Pergamum in chapter 2, verse 13. To every single church, Jesus says, I know all the things you do. The point is this, Christ sees and knows all of his church. There's there's not a thing that his church does that goes 
out, out of his sight, that goes beyond his sight, that takes place outside of his grasp or his sovereignty over those things. Jesus knows everything his church does for good and, friends, for evil. I know all the things you do. The knowledge of the church that Jesus has for the church uh, or of the church extends to, to what they do, to what they think, to who they are as a, as a community of believers, to the way that they give witness to his name in the world. Jesus knows all of it. In just these first two verses of the letter to the church at Ephesus, we see that Jesus intimately knows his people. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands knows all the things you do. Understand this morning, friends, that the church truly belongs to Jesus. That's the picture that we're getting here in just these first two verses. The church belongs to Jesus. Every local church, the church of Jesus Christ is represented in the world by local churches, doesn't belong to local churches. It doesn't belong to pastors. It doesn't belong to their members. The church, which is not buildings, but people, the church belongs to Jesus. He walks among the seven golden lampstands, not as one who's just spotlighted by them, but as one who tends to and keeps an eye on and makes sure are lit every one of those lamps that he walks among. He put them in place around himself. They didn't coalesce around him. He put them there. The church belongs to Jesus. And so as Jesus addresses the church in Ephesus and the problems that they have that we'll see in a moment, it's helpful for us to remember the church is not their own. They were bought with a price, the price of Jesus' costly blood shed for them on the cross. And they've been secured by his victory over death as he's been raised from the grave. The risen Son of Man owns his church. He rules his church. And as he said in Matthew chapter 18, he will build his church. Matthew 16, sorry. He will build his church. So Jesus introduces himself to his people, not that they didn't already know him, but he says, this is who I am. Know who it is that's talking to you. I'm the one that holds you. Second, he addresses the church. And the address to the, to the church is, this, is the main point of the letter, which is this, to beware, watch out for, loveless orthodoxy. This is the content of the bulk of the letter. Look at the second part of verse 2. I know your works, I know all the things you do, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. So remember, the remember therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Beware loveless orthodoxy. As Jesus gets into the, the meat, the heart of this letter, as he'll do with several of the churches, he commends them for something good, and then he, he recognizes or, or points out to them something that, that needs change in the life of the church, something that they need to repent of. We don't repent usually, dear friends, of good things. We repent of sinful things. So there is sin in the church at Ephesus that Jesus is calling out, that he's convicting, that he's bringing into the light and calling his people to repent of. Now, Jesus is a master communicator. 
You've often heard of people uh, giving, a, a, you give criticism within the context of a compliment sandwich, right? So you, you, if you have something hard to say to someone that you love, you tell them something nice, right? You compliment them, you encourage them, you, 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 you give them a, a word of comfort or, or, or just recognition of something they're doing well, and you give them the hard stuff. These are the things you need to work on, and then you encourage them one more time because you love them, and, right? And so you have your sandwich, right? The bread on the top and the bottom is the encouragement, but the meat, the real substance, is the stuff in the middle, the, the word of, of maybe constructive criticism or, uh, or of conviction in the case of this letter. So let's look first at the bread, at, at the way that Jesus encourages the church. Jesus first commends the church in uh, uh, chapter or verse 2 through uh, uh, 3 and then in chapter 6 for their commitment to orthodoxy and sound doctrine. If the church at Ephesus is doing anything right, they are getting the gospel right. They are guarding the truth of the gospel in their minds in a good way. They are making sure that they know, that they know, that they know the truth of Christ, the gospel once for all delivered to the saints. We find that their commitment to orthodoxy, to sound doctrine, to understanding God the right way has enabled their endurance in a pagan culture. Remember, the Ephesian church is living in, in one of the most significant religious places in all of the Roman Empire. There's a temple to the goddess Diana. There's two temples to the, to the empire of Rome and to the emperor. And here they are, this small fledgling followers, a group of followers of Jesus Christ holding on in that context, why? Because they know the truth. That's a good thing. Orthodoxy, sound doctrine, anchors the faith of the people in Jesus, uh, the, that belong to Jesus in truth. And their commitment to orthodoxy, their commitment to sound doctrine, their, their commitment to, to a right understanding of who Jesus is and what the gospel is, has also helped them to guard against false teachers. We see in verse 2 that they have guarded against false apostles. They have seen those who have claimed to have authority given to them by Christ coming into the church to try to speak in an authoritative way over the church, and they have recognized that these false apostles are not preaching the, the true gospel, or these self-proclaimed apostles are not preaching the true gospel, and they call them out on it. And Jesus says, good job. You know the truth. You're not dissuaded or, or, or persuaded by lies. Great work. And we don't know what the falsehood was. Uh, that, that, that these apostles were bringing, but we know that the knowledge of the true gospel and of Christian history in the life of the church up to this point was a big part of pointing out that falsehood, protecting the church against false teachers. So right, right doctrine, sound theology has helped them to guard against false apostles, and we see in verse 6 that it's also helped them to guard against the Nicolaitans. This is an interesting group. Verse 6, Jesus says, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Goodness, Jesus hates somebody? Well, at least they're works. How is it that Jesus could say this? What is it that, that these Nicolaitans are doing or saying that is so detestable in the sight of Christ? This is kind of a, a little bit of a, a mystery of history. We're not really sure who the Nicolaitans are. Uh, some scholars think that these are possibly followers of a man named Nicholas, who was uh, among one of the seven that were chosen to see to the physical needs of the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. Possibly a, a Christian leader in the church who developed some sort of errant theology, wrong teaching, 
And those who followed his teaching, those who propagated his teaching down into history, into John's day here at uh, uh, the, the late 90s AD, uh, are those who have followed Nicholas's teaching, or perhaps are attributing a false teacher to Nicholas. They're, they're called by his name. They are the Nicolaitans. We're not exactly sure what it is that they were teaching. They're mentioned as the Nicolaitans are only mentioned in the New Testament here in uh, chapter 2, verse 6, and in the next letter excuse me, two letters later to the church in Pergamum in chapter 2, verse 15. Jesus says, though, he hates them. These are strong words, or at least he hates their works. Why would Jesus say this? Well, historians that have have dug into, and scholars that have dug into who the Nicolaitans are and what it was that they were teaching, have posited that it seems likely or most possible that the Nicolaitans were teaching some form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a, a, a break-off sect or kind of a, a cultic group that, that spun out of Christianity in its early days that was telling people, in order to be saved, you have to have more than just faith in Jesus as the one who died for sins and was raised again. You have to have this special knowledge that can only be revealed to you by God. And no other person has this knowledge. You have to wait for the, the Spirit of God to, to give it to you. And until you have it, you can't really be saved. And, and, and also, by the way, as we're living and walking in the world, understand this, there's, there's spiritual things and there are physical things. And the stuff that really matters is the spiritual stuff. So guard yourself spiritually. But physically, you do whatever you want. You want to sleep with people that you're not married to? Like, that's not really a big deal. You're just doing it with your body. You're not doing that with your, with your soul. If you want to worship in temples of other gods, you can go ahead or just, you know, attend the party. Not a big deal because you're just doing it with your body. You're not doing it with your soul. Those things are totally separate. These are the kind of things that the Gnostics were teaching. It seems that the Nicolaitans may have been a part of that group, may have been encouraging Christians in Ephesus, remember, where there's three temples to false gods, false deities, uh, temples that are calling the people to worship the empire, that these Nicolaitans were saying, if you want to go hang out with those people that are partying at the temple of Diana, you want to slaughter a bull or something like that and just hang out with those folks, go right ahead, not a big deal. It's just your body doing it. It's not your soul. Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. You hate the work of those who deceive my people into thinking they can flirt with falsehood, that they can, that they can party with the perverse, that, that their spiritual lives and their physical lives are not bound together as a psychosomatic unity as we know that God in his word has, has made us. He has made us mind, body, and soul, united wholes. We, we don't live two separate lives. We don't live a spiritual life and a physical life. We live one life in Christ. Jesus says, I hate the works of those who lead my people astray to think that they can engage in the worship of false gods and still call them my people. Jesus first commends the church at the front end and at the back end for their commitment to orthodoxy and sound doctrine. And so before we move on to see what he, he calls the church to repent of, let's notice this. It is good and right to pursue true knowledge of Christ. It is good and right to pursue true knowledge of Christ. Christian theology is not a scary four-letter word. Neither is doctrine. These are good things. We should love right theology. We should not be afraid to study theology, Christian theology. We should not be scared to delve into the depths of the doctrine of the person of God the Father, the person of God the Son, the person of God the Holy Spirit. 
We should not be afraid to dig into the doctrine of salvation. We should not be afraid to discuss doctrines of sanctification. We should not be afraid to discuss how it is that as a church, guarding right doctrine helps us, or, or, or focusing on right doctrine helps us to identify and oppose false doctrine. We should not be afraid to engage our minds as well as our hearts in the Christian life so that we can know what is true and protect it. Right orthodoxy, sound doctrine, is commendable by Jesus. The church should be growing in these things. We should know the difference between the heresies of Arianism and Apollinarianism and Nestorianism. And Ken Stephan will be happy to explain all of those to you after worship this morning. We should be able to discuss Calvinism and Arminianism and, and the merits of either. We should pursue sound doctrine and good theology because Jesus says it's right to do it. If it sharpens your understanding of the truth, press into it. He commends the church for it. But then, and this is the, the hard part, this is the meat of the sandwich. Good job, you know the truth but I have this against you. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the one who says to his church, I know all the things you do, says to the church at Ephesus, I have this against you. That's scary. To have the Lord of creation, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the one who tends to his church in every place, to say to his church, he's not talking to unbelievers here, friends. He's talking to Christians to say, I have this against you, ought to make us Stop and listen. Jesus commends them for their commitment to sound doctrine, but he confronts and convicts them of their lovelessness. This I have against you, verse 4, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. These are not the kind of words that I don't think any believer wants to hear from Jesus from Jesus who sees and who knows all that we do, from Jesus who knows our hearts even better than we do. Jesus' charge to the Ephesian church is that they have lost, they have abandoned, they've given up, they've left behind their first love. The danger that's posed here is that the church is, is professing a true gospel in Ephesus. Good job. You know the gospel. You're proclaiming it. You're guarding the church from false teachers but you're proclaiming the gospel without the love of God or the love for neighbor, especially the love for those who don't know Christ that is at the very heart of the gospel. In John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus says, God demonstrates His love in this way. He sends His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Paul says of God's love in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus says, greater love is no man than this, and He laid down His life for His friends. In this way, the Ephesian Christians, it seems, have become what Paul warned the Corinthian church against, being a church without love for one another, or especially for the lost. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 and 3, If I speak in the tongues of men and, in, and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, and I have not love, I gain nothing. The church at Ephesus seemed to be a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, an annoying noise in the ears of those in the world who did not know Christ because the way that they were proclaiming Christ was so loveless that it was off-putting to everyone who needed Christ the most. Beware loveless orthodoxy, Jesus says. Beware loving being right to the point that you hate people who disagree with you. Can someone on Twitter testify to that? There's so much of the world that, that we see around us today. It's so easy in, in the world that we live in to give in to this fundamentalist spirit that, that we feel that we have to guard these things that we hold so tightly to the point that we are willing to throw under the bus everyone who disagrees with us, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian. If you're not on my side, I hope you're dead in the street. That's the way that we conduct ourselves in the world. That's, the way, that's how I see Christians conducting themselves on Facebook and Twitter. If you don't believe exactly like I believe, in every minute, tiny little detail, I'd rather you be dead in the street than in my church. And this seems to be the kind of spirit that the church in Ephesus has. They, they love Jesus so much, they hate everyone who doesn't. What? What? This is crazy. The God who demonstrates his love to the world and giving his only son to die for sins that he might raise him from the dead to draw all eyes to him, to transform their hearts, to love and adore him, the thing that they've been created to do. The God who loves sinners in spite of themselves and so sends his son to rescue them from death and hell forever is now followed by a bunch of people who say, we love you, Jesus, and we hate all the people that don't. What? What? The risen Son of Man who walks among the seven golden lampstands says to the church at Ephesus, I know all the things you do, including how you treat people who don't know me, especially how you treat people who don't know me. Your problem, church at Ephesus, is you've lost your first love. You've abandoned your first love. You've left it behind, never to look at it again. That first love of calling other people who need to know the salvation of Jesus, calling them in love and, 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 and compassion with all sympathy for their broken state, seeing that they are headed to an eternity in hell separated from God, and you have turned away from them to guard the gospel? As though, the, as though Jesus needed to be guarded? Charles Spurgeon once said that guarding the gospel, protecting Jesus, is like a man who puts a lion in a cage to protect him from other people. He says, man, that lion needs no protection. Open the cage and let him loose. Do we want to guard a right teaching of the gospel? Absolutely. Do we want to protect? 
pursue and, and persevere in a, a clear and true understanding of who God is and what the gospel is? Do we want to make sure that we're proclaiming it clearly all the time? Yeah, absolutely, but not to the point that we have to hate other people who are against us as though somehow they're going to undermine it or, or, or break it down or destroy it. Jesus said, I will build my church. So he calls out the Ephesian church for their loveless orthodoxy, and he calls them to change. He says, change this, fix this, get this right. He calls them to do three things. They all start with R, so they're easy to remember. Remember, repent, return. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at the first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, and I'm including my last R, return to the works you did at the first. For the church, or for the Christian even today, that loves being right more than they love seeing people come to Christ, this is the remedy. Remember, repent, return. Remember, first of all, the love for Jesus that emboldened you to care for others. Christian, are you tempted to, toward loveless orthodoxy? Can I confess something to you this morning? I am sometimes. When you are tempted toward loveless orthodoxy, loving being right more than you love seeing people come to Christ, remember, first of all, the love for Jesus that, that made you just an on-fire proclaimer of the gospel to everyone who needed to hear it when you first came to know Him. To remember where you have fallen, as Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, is to say that, that Christ-driven love for others is the attitude and the heart condition to aspire to. Friend, if your heart is not driven by Christ to love others, remember or make it a point in your mind to get there. If, you've, if you're a Christian, but you've never really loved to see other people come to Christ, understand that that is what Jesus calls you as a follower of his to aspire to. Christ holds in high esteem those who bear witness to him with godly compassion for the lost. Jesus thinks highly. He's not more gracious to, he doesn't have more favor on, but he thinks highly of those who love others toward him. Remember the love you had for first. And then repent. Repent of lovelessness. Change your mind about those that you despise. Pray for your enemies, for in doing so, you will heap burning coals on their head. Or else plead with God to change your mind. Christian, are you tempted like the Ephesian church toward loveless orthodoxy in a way that makes you hate everyone that doesn't love Jesus exactly the way that you do? Would you repent of that today? Would you make a decision, a determination to change your mind about that today? And if you can't bring, it, uh, bring yourself to changing your mind about the people that you hate that don't love Jesus, will you bring yourself to ask God to change your mind for you? God, I don't love those people that don't love you. And I know that I should, but I can't change my mind. So God, will you do it? Because I know that I need to. Remember where you've fallen. Repent from lovelessness. Return to the works you did at first. Go back to that love-filled compassion for the lost, for people who are, who are living in a dark and a dying world, and point them to the light of life, the one who gives life, Jesus himself. Return to the works you did at first. Christian, if you've been lax, if you've been lazy in your gospel proclaiming because your love has gone cold for the lost, well then start again. Start sharing the gospel again with the expectation that God will also increase your love uh, for bearing public witness to the power of Jesus. Sometimes in our marriages, 
The love goes cold. It's not that we're less committed to our husband or our wife, but just something is, just the fire's not there anymore. And the thing we got to do is, is not convince ourselves to feel a certain way again. The thing we need to do again, husbands, is go buy some flowers for our wives for no particular reason at all. Take her out on a date to her favorite restaurant, even though that's really the last thing you want to do on a Friday night after a long week. You do the things you did at first knowing, knowing that the right things to do will also bring about right emotions about doing those things. We buy flowers for our wives when we've neglected to do so because we know that in so doing it will warm their hearts and seeing their hearts warm for us is going to warm our hearts for them. We do the hard things to do that are the right things to do knowing that it's going to change our hearts too. Christian, are you guilty of loveless orthodoxy? Well, then with all the energy you can muster, start sharing the gospel again with those that need to hear it, expecting that God will raise your affections for Jesus and for the lost as you do so. As you do the right thing, even with maybe conflicted motives or conflicted heart about doing it, doing the right thing, knowing that's what God calls you to do, even though if you don't love the person that you're doing it for, do it anyway, expecting that God will change your heart to love those that you're doing this for. I have this against you, Jesus says. It's a scary word to hear from the judge of all the universe, but he gives them some hope. There's a call to change. They're not lost forever. He says, remember where you fell from, repent, do the works you did at first. But he also charges the church with a warning. If you don't, if you don't remember, if you don't repent, if you don't return, he says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. We've said Jesus, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands that are the seven churches, has all authority to do what he wants with his church. Jesus can do whatever he wills with his church. But listen, his will is not capricious. His will is not unknowable. His will is not so mysterious that the church can never understand it. Jesus wills that his church rightly display his name in the world. That's what he wants from his representatives in the world. That's what he wants from every local church, to rightly display his name, to rightly bring glory to him and exalt his name in the world. And if they don't do it, In this case, if the Ephesian church continues in loveless orthodoxy, they've got all the right teaching, but none of the love for the lost. If they persist in that, Jesus will remove them. He will remove their lampstand. He will close the doors of his church in Ephesus if they don't repent of their loveless orthodoxy. Now listen, Jesus doesn't tell them to repent of their orthodoxy. Jesus doesn't tell them, stop caring so much about the truth. No, he says, start caring as much for the lost as you do for the truth. Bring your, bring your affections up to par with your, your desire for the, the knowledge of, of the truth. Don't lose your orthodoxy for the sake of loving people. No, 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 no. Bring the level of your love up to the level of your pursuit of orthodoxy. And now we're cooking, church. But if you don't, I'll remove your lampstand. Isn't this wild? This is, and this is, not, this is not an empty threat. These are real consequences for unrepentance. Jesus would rather not, and I'm, trying, I'm having a hard time squaring this in my head, but I think this is what he's saying in Revelation 2, that he would rather not have any corporate witness to his name in the church of Ephesus than a loveless witness to his name in the church in Ephesus. 
I'll say that one more time. Jesus would rather have no corporate witness to his name in the city of Ephesus than a loveless witness to his name in the city of Ephesus. What? Huh. Beware loveless orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is good, friends. Right doctrine is good. Jesus commends it. He says, church, you're nailing it here to the church at Ephesus. But you've got a big problem. You don't love anyone. A lot of this warning to beware loveless orthodoxy. Christian, this morning, I plead with you and speak this word to myself too. Search your heart for any lack of love for those that don't know Christ. Search your heart for any lack of love for the lost. And where you find it, remember where you've fallen from, repent, and return to the works you did at first. Because Jesus would rather have no corporate witness to his name in the city than a loveless witness to his name in the city. Verse 7, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear. The Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He closes this letter, and he'll close every single letter like this over the next two chapters with a call to hear and to obey. This phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, comes at the end of every single letter to every single church in Revelation. The repetition, remember, we're going to recognize repetition. That's one of our principles for interpreting Revelation. Repetition of phrases should perk our ears up. And this phrase is repeated seven times. He who has an ear, let him hear, indicates that while each of the letters is addressed to the individual church that it's written to, this letter is to the church at Ephesus. The the call to hear and to obey is to all the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Which means that the letter to the church in Ephesus meant, had significance had had meaning to the church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, and it had meaning for the church in Smyrna, and the church in Pergamum, and the church in Thyatira, and the church in Sardis, and the church in Philadelphia, and the church in Laodicea, and the church at First Baptist West Albuquerque. To the one who conquers, this formulation or something similar to it also occurs in every letter in Revelation, conquering, overcoming persevering, depending on the translation, is never seen in the context of the church as a result of violent conflict or physical battle. Jesus is not saying to the one who takes up the sword in my name and slays all his enemies in the street, I'll give. No. Conquering, the, the, winning the battle in Revelation is not winning a physical battle, it's winning a spiritual battle. Remember, Revelation is a, an apocalypse. It's a pulling back of the curtain to reveal spiritual realities that are going on in the middle of of ongoing events. Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus, you are in the middle of a spiritual battle. I'm calling you to overcome. I'm calling you to conquer. And you don't conquer by winning physically. You conquer by winning spiritually. And the way that you win spiritually is by persevering with faith even to the moment of your death. The way that you conquer spiritually is by obeying what the Spirit says to the churches. When Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear, he's not speaking about ears that are on our heads. He's speaking about ears that are in our hearts. Ultimate victory has already been accomplished by Jesus. And this theme is all throughout Jesus. He's the lamb who was slain, but who's the lion of the tribe of Judah, ruling and reigning over all things. The battle has already been won by Jesus. 
ultimate victory has already been accomplished by him. Christ is overcome by dying for sins and being raised again, and his church overcomes by faithful perseverance in the gospel even unto death. The one who conquers by faithful perseverance, faithful faithful endurance in the gospel, faithful obedience to the call to repent of loveless orthodoxy, to the one who conquers in that way, Jesus will grant to eat of the tree of life that's in the paradise of God. The reward for conquering by faith and perseverance is eternal life that is given and sustained in the very presence of God. This, this image of the tree of life looks backward to Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, where there in the Garden of Eden, God put a tree of life for the man and the woman to eat of, that they might eat of it and never die. But it also looks forward to Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, where the tree of life straddles a river that is coming from the very throne of God in the new Jerusalem. And, and it bears fruit all season long and is there to be eaten of by those who have been redeemed. And the fruit of the tree of life is there for the healing of nations, John says in Revelation 22. It's the tree of life was there when God first created the world, and it is there when He recreates the world, making it new and sustaining it all by His own power and giving life eternal to those who have endured in faithful perseverance to Jesus. It's a call to hear and obey. Church, this morning, listen to what the Spirit says then and respond in obedience to the one who has ears to hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise uh, of God. Friend, if you hear what the Spirit says to the churches today, to beware loveless orthodoxy and where it is found, to remember where you've fallen, to, to repent of that sin, to return to the works you did at first, then do it. Do it. If the letter to the church at Ephesus is convicting your heart today, respond in obedience. Now, obedience can be difficult, can't it? Repentance is rarely easy, isn't it? Every time we come to Scripture, the Spirit, though, is speaking. The Spirit doesn't just speak when Jesus says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We know from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for training, correction, uh, teaching, correction, reproof, uh, training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. All of Scripture is breathed out by the Spirit. Every time you open the Bible and read it, you are hearing, or at least reading, what the Spirit says to the church. Today, the Spirit through the Scriptures is speaking. Today, the Spirit through the Scriptures is commanding us to engage our hearts and to stir up our affections for Christ and to stir up our affections for those who don't know Him. Friend, are you not yet a Christian? And you're wondering, why in the world did I pick of all days to visit a church that's preaching on Revelation? Brother, I don't know. Sister, I don't know. But God in His providence has brought you here. Are you not yet a Christian? Well, then hear, first of all, today the call to eternal life with Christ. Hear, first of all, that. Perhaps the command to repent of lovelessness is not yet pertinent to your life because you've not yet experienced the kind of Jesus-oriented love toward others that Christ is commanding. Fine. But hear today the call to conquer, the call to overcome, the call to be victorious, 
not by leaving all your enemies dead in the street, but by giving your life to the true victor over sin, the one who gave his sinless life as a sacrifice for yours, who raised his life from the dead, never to die again, so that he could raise yours from the dead, never to die again. Start there. Hear what the Spirit says to you. Trust Christ. Conquer. Eat of the tree of the uh, eat of the fruit of the tree of life that is in the paradise of God by knowing Christ as your Lord and receive from him the right to spend eternity in the presence of God. Yeah. Christian, the Spirit speaks clearly and with a stern warning to us today too. We are called to love our neighbor and to give witness to the power of Christ in the world with joy and passion for the hope that is Jesus We are called to exhibit love-filled orthodoxy in the world. Has your love for being right about the gospel hardened your heart to those who need it most? Be honest with yourself. It won't help you if you don't. Be honest with yourself. Is your instinctive impulse, Christian, to turn inward and away from those who disagree with you? Or to extend your heart in understanding and compassion toward them. Friend, if you're guilty of loveless orthodoxy, if our church, if First Baptist West Albuquerque in any way bears resemblance to the church in Ephesus, may God give us grace to repent of it today. To remember what Christ has called us to. To remember the love that Christ himself modeled for us to follow. And return to our first love of making Christ known in truth. Yes, and in love. Let us not be a church that Jesus warns that he may remove their lampstand because he would rather have no corporate witness to his gospel in a neighborhood than a loveless witness to his gospel in a neighborhood. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together.